for October 3rd, 2011. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 170. Guy who makes the craft services who feeds Aaron Sorkin. The Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Back in Los Angeles, California, and reinstalled as my, in my rightful place as the tin dictator of the Overthinking It podcast, from which none of you will ever depose me. <laughs> Great job last week, by the way, Pete. Oh, my, my pleasure. Glad to have you back, uh, um, Lord <laughs> Protector of the podcast. <laughs> Uh, Matt, were you afraid of the Tahrir Square circulating in the comments thread of the last uh, post? Yeah, absolutely. Right, You're going to yeah. cut off the internet to, you know, the protesters and whatnot? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to take your internet away. You're going to have to start <laughs> Facebook groups. It will, be the, it will be the overthinking spring, or I guess right. Uh, yeah. The overthinking. <laughs> the the reason we don't, have, yeah, we don't have any women on the podcast because uh, Matt just uh, pepper sprays them for no reason when they try to <laughs> occupy here. It's very unfortunate. <laughs> Too soon? Too soon. Okay. Are you allowed to talk about that, Pete? I what? wasn't going to bring it up because I assumed it was one of those things that was embargoed by the fact that you're actually like a spy. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like that's pretty much on the border, um, but I won't talk about anything specific. Sure. Okay, um, fine. I'm here. Matthew Rather here with the panel and special guest Tim Swan to overthink. Regular guest. Regular guest. I was going to object to the last time that Pete called me special, but then... Whenever anyone calls me special, I just get a warm glow, so I let them off. Right. Quotidian guest, uh, Tim Stone. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and his, his presence gives me a ho-hum feeling uh, that I'm sure Ooh. bodes well for the whole podcast. <laughs> so, um, yes, uh, we are back. And this time we're overthinking Moneyball uh, and all kinds of things. So, uh, panel, your question this week. If you could improve one area of your life uh, through the application of statistics and new theories and science and, and data gathering, what would it be? Uh, back in his rightful place at the beginning of the uh, panel, whereas he graciously took the last spot, being the host last week, it is host extraordinaire, ten times the host that I could ever be. <laughs> it's 10.2 times <laughs> because his, just say my name man just say my name that's what i'm waiting for his, his, his callback percentage is you know <laughs> higher than mine is it's pete fenzel hey how's it going <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So I don't know if you ever have this experience when you're at work or, say, doing some other kind of productive activity or unproductive activity where you, like, get up and you're trying to decide why you got up. Uh, you're trying to, did I get up to go to the bathroom? Uh, did I get up because I need to go get a coffee? Did I get up because I need water? Uh, did I get up because I haven't had lunch and it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Or did I need to talk to somebody? Uh, did I need to go and actually like go to somebody's office and have a conversation with them? And I think I'm going to say that like my getting up from my desk, like every time I stand up from a chair, I want to start tracking uh, why I stood up in the first place. Not to discourage me from standing up, of course, because sitting down is not something you want to do all the time. But I feel like we are, we are standing up from our chairs in our lives. It's something that we do based on tradition and kind of old school ideas of, 
uh, walking around and and fulfilling our material needs as human beings and animals. And I want to start breaking that down with statistics so we figure out exactly why we do it and how it works. My my version of that experience that you have, Pete, is that I will sit down at the computer – to do something and then like mm-hmm. 50 windows and 20 tabs in uh you know in chrome later i will not remember the original task that i had the, the original like important you know time critical task that i had uh sat down at the computer to accomplish and we'll be like wait why the hell am i here uh yeah again? the underlying question is just time management right and it's like well when am I, what is the optimal amount of time of time for me to work on what projects and why um and when should i yeah that's kind of like attention management you know what i mean right yeah exactly exactly it's not just slating this number of hours a day to a certain thing it's like the efficacy ratio and like all that other stuff i'm sure i'm sure walking is actually just as good as doing work most of the time at least according to Moneyball. Have you seen there's a there's a guy who's done this pete uh he like did his entire life in statistics Really, uh, and it puts out a like this kind of amazing infographic every year, like number of steps taken and uh, you know cheeseburgers scarfed down. Pretty great. So it's like sort of Bridget Jones slash Rent, like five hundred twenty-five thousand six hundred minutes and like fifteen cigarettes. Yes, uh, through, through the eyes of Rain Man. Nice. nice, nice. <laughs> does, he, does, he, he, does he measure in love? <laughs> Seasons of we'll love. That. Yeah, exactly. Moonlights and cups. And of how coffee. detailed? How intimate do you get in the uh, in in yeah. the thing? That's you know, I don't know. And how long can you go before before you rhyme something with strife? As people always have to do in those sorts of things. <laughs> Mark Lee. <laughs> All right, I would say that I would improve my understanding of the IMDb top 250 list through statistics, but I've already got that pretty good unlock, and I'm going to add to it in about a week's time with the fourth, yes, count them, fourth edition of the IMDb top 250 movies analysis. We do it every year right on the time of the IMDb uh, birthday to find out how that list changes over the years. Um, but that's not what I'm here to talk about because, like I said, I already got it unlocked. That's what we in the uh, business call a tease. Yes. It is a tease. <laughs> what I do not have unlocked, but I should through the use of statistics, is my consumption of burritos. I think the, the subject of burritos <laughs> has come up on Overthinking and the podcast a, a surprisingly large number of times, given our typical subject matter. Um, but not a surprising number of times, given our burrito consumption, <laughs> which is considerable. <laughs> <laughs> because I typically order the exact same burrito when I go to Chipotle. Um, not, a, not a sponsored advertisement, though. It really should be. Chipotle, call us. Um, it, which is uh, barbacoa, uh, uh, medium salsa, lettuce, tomato, um, and uh, I think and cheese, um, and black beans. Always black beans. Um, I am convinced that there's a certain optimal ratio for all these ingredients. Uh, that you know neither strains the strength of the uh, tortilla packaging, huh. and and also sort of all the different flavors don't overwhelm each other, so to create sort of the optimal experience. Well, I'm sure someone's doing that. Like, someone's got to be doing that at Chipotle, right? Like, oh, like, like a the food, food lab? Yeah, they, they got to do that stuff all the time. I and mean, they were owned by McDonald's for a little I mean, while. I'm sure they do. Actually, but they, 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 they pay a consulting firm like $50 million a year to do that is actually right. what happens. Well, I, so they, I, how do I get a job at this consulting firm? Well, you got to get a degree in food science, right? Like, you got to go to, like, you got to go to, like, Texas A&M or something. And you got to study. Wait, take the fun out of my dreams. <laughs> You bite, your t- you bite your tongue, Fenzel. My parents, my parents met each other at the University of Texas at Austin, Hook'em Horns, where they both got bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees. Uh, bam, 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 one, two, three, everything's bigger in Texas, Hook'em Horns. You're, That's you're, not an oh, A&M school, though. You know, agriculture and what? M is for military, right? Oddly. No, mining. 
Mining. Oh. Mechanical. Mechanical. No, it's mining. <laughs> That's the, mechanical. Uh, <laughs> right. No, I'm thinking of Colorado Mining Institute or whatever it is. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, is it horns. Is that what it is? It's agricultural <laughs> mechanical. Texas fight. Texas fight. And it's goodbye to A and M. Anyway. <laughs> Burrito consumption. The answer from Mark Lee. And now you'll be glad to know, ladies and gentlemen, that he has successfully landed his airplane and is now <laughs> back on terra firma. Josh McNeil. Yes, uh, we praise be to the U.S. Airways and all of the money they've sucked out of uh, of me just to the privilege of getting home. Um, so I've been thinking long, long and hard about this. Uh, the, the part of my life that I would like to improve with statistics uh, are my lies and my damn lies. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I feel like that, you know, when, when, when I'm lying, I, I rarely, I'm not a credible uh, a numbers person. Anybody who's talked to me for more than about 20 minutes knows that my, my relationship with math is one of horror and, um, you know, sort of cowardly fleeing. So um, being able to really just, you know, throw some solid, believable statistics into my, my damn lies would be very, very helpful. Uh, and then finally, I'll, I'll just put you in the normal alphabetical order, Tim, because you're no longer special. Uh, Tim Swan from uh, Merry Old England. Tim, what would you like to improve with statistics? Uh, well, if I could fix time zones so they were a bit more hospitable, that'd be nice. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, genuinely, uh, I have a job interview coming up, and I've already started thinking, can I use uh, the science of statistics and, I guess, more broadly, psychology, which depends on it almost entirely, to improve my chances. Statistically, what is the best colour tie to wear? How should I do my hair? All of these little things, I'm really wishing I had, like, a trove of statistics to go into and figure out what is going to get me this job. Um, Cheating the system using science is how I think of it. Proper pounds per square inch for a handshake. Oh, that would be brilliant. I mean... How many other applicants you have to kill? <laughs> I think that would be frowned upon. It's, it's a kind of care provision role. Um, <laughs> so unless I kill them with kindness, I guess. Uh, excellent, excellent. I mean, you'd think that, that that's such a high-stakes thing. you think someone must have studied that already. But it's impossible, I guess, to sort of get a good sample, right? Because when, when people are doing interviews, I guess they're considered sort of mission critical to whatever organization, and they're not willing to do, like, I don't know, a bunch of extra interviews for the sake of science and, like, who would we hire, right? And it's So simulated... Well, Lab simulated interviews would not be sufficient. Well, no, it's impossible well, to recreate was, the stakes, right? Yeah, it, it, the social I, desirability I, fa- factor would be huge, right? Like you would want to portray who you think people think you should hire, right? Like, oh, we hired yeah. the most uh, qualified candidate, and it was it fell exactly along the predetermined, you know, sexual and racial and and you know religious, uh, you know, proportions that that make it most politically convenient. Oh, yeah, totally. But there, there has been examples of businesses being studied under more experimental conditions. My brother was only the other day saying there was uh, a business where they promoted people at random with scientists watching. And it was no less effective than a business that promoted people on merit. I'm doing air quotes. Those don't work on podcasts. I've really got to learn. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, because there's a lot of to, to show that, you know, more money only really helps performance in fields where it's like very rote what your job is, right? Like in very, uh, very repetitive and very like, uh, like, you know, production of a given um, good, right? As opposed to like the management of a complex process that paying people more money doesn't actually produce better results. Um, they, uh, hey, they, that's, a, that's an interesting prefiguring of what we're going to talk about in the podcast. But let me, uh, <laughs> let, me get my, let me get my answer in. My my the thing that I would like to to uh, improve with statistics is which line to choose in the grocery store. Because whenever I am in the supermarket, <laughs> um, I uh, I invariably choose the wrong line with you know a person who like i don't know forgets their credit card or something like that or has like 20 coupons or wants to argue you know the merits of the pricing in the circular with the uh, you know with the clerk who is a, a teenager being paid minimum wage and does not care about you know your life your cats or your sense of entitlement um, I, you know, and so don't I, bring my cats into this, Matt. <laughs> don't bring my cats into this. All right, one ninety nine for three is one ninety nine for three. Cats are no cats. Yeah, but that's the non premium tuna fish, Mark. Your cats, you know, they can eat. They don't need to eat chicken of the sea. <laughs> I'm, I'm off of this podcast. Well, I, I've seen uh, studies. Well, one study I saw that was really interesting was uh, an experiment they did on people involving traffic lanes and the perception of tra- which traffic lane moves faster than another traffic sure. lane. And and they find that why, because you see the cars that pass you and you don't see the cars that you pass, uh, a disproportionate number of people always think they're in the bad lane, sure. even when it's actually controlled and the lanes are moving on the average of the same speed. As, as opposed to me, who am always in the bad lane. Yeah, well, because you, yeah, you're just unlucky, and yeah. you're just the unluckiest person. <laughs> Matt, Matt, you are the exception that proves the rule. You're, you're in the wrong lane because you're driving in the shoulder, just cursing everybody out. <laughs> Get out of my way! Uh, yeah, I um, oh man, uh, well, I I did read that the um the best system is to have one line that feeds all the registers, right? At a at a grocery store, that that is the most efficient way. Uh, that will move the most people the most quickly through the uh, through the system, but people don't like it because they like to they like to feel some some measure of control uh, over their choices. So they don't they don't like just getting in the huge feeder line, um, even though that is even though that is by and large faster. I don't know. It seems to work fairly well at the Manhattan Whole Foods. But thinking again, that's a genteel crowd that's willing to you know <laughs> sacrifice for their. Um, yeah, but it's also the throughput. I mean, it's almost like it's so. The the crush of people there is so intense that you almost it doesn't matter what people prefer you have to do it that way or else the whole store would become you know a, a hotbed of of unrest and there would be rioting it would be the the Whole Foods spring. <laughs> <laughs> so since since my uh, my Odyssey out in Oregon last weekend I've been thinking a lot about planes and you see there was a study recently that they figured out that boarding a plane um, if you board every other row. And do it from sort of the windows into the aisles. It, you can do it sort of in a third of the time it takes in, in current situations. And yet, like, clearly that's never going to happen. <laughs> and why is that? I've been, I've been sort of pondering this question. Like, okay, so this study was done. Like, why did the next day not every airline do this? What's the inertia? Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess it's part of it has to do with like you have to give something to your elite level flyers, don't you? You gotta you gotta throw them a bone. So once once you do that, the whole system's messed up anyway because they're all clustered in first class and around the exit rows. 
I think a lot of logical explanation based on the movie that I saw this past weekend is that the people at the airlines who make these decisions are a bunch of crotchety old guys who think about, you know, body type and, <laughs> you know, when, when boarding passengers and they're blinded to that. They're blinded to the truth because of their fixation to the old outdated, uh, their old outdated uh, ideas. I, though I, I guess I read in when I read that study and saw this sort of video of the experiment that was done with it. I um, I also uh, read that they did as a control. They did like just random boarding, and that in fact was preferable to the system that we have now. Right. Right. Wow. Right. Yeah, that if you just let people, if you let people on at, at random, because, you know, think about it, if it's just sort of a random sort of distribution of people around the plane, they're they're likely to be very spread out, you know? Um, that is to say, it's more likely that there'll be some, some amount of spread out than it is that they'll be concentrated in one... Uh, in one area, and so that it accomplishes more or less the same thing as you know boarding every three rows so that everyone has elbow room to put their um, to put their uh, uh, you know bags up top. Mm-hmm. I, Why don't we just theory, do it? Oh, go ahead. My one theory thus far is that they they have us in these zones, so we all sort of like edge in front of each other, and sort of there's this like they set you up so by the time you're on the plane, you hate everyone else on the plane, which prevents you from hating the airline as much as you otherwise would. they're they're trying to set you against each other like like it's a complete divide and conquer situation (laughs) it's like the hunger games like these people are scabs you hate scabs right we both hate scabs you know me the boss and you the worker so you guys should yell at each other (laughs) you know what they should do they should do it like when they do with moving companies now where you can board a, a container box and then they put the container box on the, on a big cargo plane like and so that way you don't have to all go into the plane at the same time it's well, like they pay, do and you pay per container box so you can like yeah. you know you can like load 30 people into your uh you know uh, like say, you, you, human trafficking style you can yes. load 30 people <laughs> into your container box or you can yeah. have the like the the first class container box if you want to pay that much money for it you know you can do whatever you want I mean, the movie business, the problem- a lot of its business uh, knowledge from pornography. I don't know why the civilian transportation business doesn't look to human traffickers for more efficient solutions to it. Oh, the Chinatown bus. <laughs> Seriously, China- like, sorry about that. the drug dealers have subs. <laughs> what? The drug dealers have subs that can get, like, you know, tons of cocaine into the United States in hours. Like, <laughs> we try, yeah, try getting a, a commercial flight to Costa Rica on, out of season. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! Oh, you got to charge so, that. We kill us, Moneyball. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I was going to say that I think there was a segue moment earlier, and I was thinking that Lee probably has the best segue rating amongst the entire team. You know, if I was doing my overthinkers draft, which is a thing that you guys have that I have no idea how it works. Um, I think well, so you if, have I, to do if I needed a segue plan. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Tim, I hope you have a superlative for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I can, given enough time. Uh, sure. Right. Well, <laughs> sorry, I'll crunch the numbers. Yep. Moneyball! <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so who here wrote, read the book before they saw the movie? Because I read I, the uh, book. I so. did not. Did you, so you did, Pete, so you can give us some insight. 
Oh yeah, I mean it's great. I, I mean I love the move. I mean I probably am a bit more of a sports fan than than some of the people on the podcast, uh, having been raised as like a, a big Yankee fan and um, you know playing catch with my dad and stuff like that. I'm sure some of you guys did some of this stuff too. Um, but my sense from the run-up email conversation was somewhat uh, of skepticism regarding the romanticization of sport. Um, but uh, was the XKCD comic that I linked about the num- sports being random numbers? Yeah, was exactly. That- yeah, I think that was it. Um, oh, the, the- I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, the, the book is really good. The movie is really good. Obviously, they're different. Uh, you know, the movie is Aaron Sorkin and. and uh, um, right, and he has a yeah, he has an agenda kind of as a storyteller, doesn't he? Yeah, and as a sports storyteller too, because he wrote you know, Sports Night is his yeah. thing, and Sports Night is just a wonderful seminal work of contemporary sports entertainment, as it were. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that the book goes into more detail, obviously, and you learn more about the whole sabermetrics system, and it's much, much, bit more of a nonfiction work in terms of explaining all of it. But um, going into this movie, it was interesting to see how they tried to make it. How they kept making. I feel like they didn't sacrifice a lot to make it interesting to people who might not be into the statistics, um, because I, I think that they did bring out like right up front too. They didn't like make you wait for the big reveal of the statistical analysis style, right? They weren't like the big climax of this movie is when they're going to explain to you how the statistics work um they they carried that stuff out pretty early on and then they just sort of followed the the chronological order of stuff the whole stuff where they're flashing back to billy bean's youth that's in the book to an extent too um because it's kind of important right in terms of putting into context who billy bean is and and narrativizing the thing the decisions that were made like why what what why would this one person be so disenchanted and be such a a rebel against the baseball establishment and the scouting establishment in particular and that personal history he has is a very convenient psychological way not not because his parents were murdered before him in cold blood but because his baseball (laughs) career was was uh was murdered uh, by yeah, scouts the, and cold. The, the book left out the part where his pugilist father was hit by a radioactive waste truck and he had to jump in blinded <laughs> and give superior talent management and statistical analysis skills. Um, they call him the Calculo Devil. I, I bet there is a minor X Man. X Men? X, X Mutant. It's a minor X Man. It's like statistics power. What? With statistics, statistics power? They've Probably. given every power out. There must be one. Maybe I'll look that up. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, yeah, I mean, there's not a tremendous amount of insight comparing it to the comparing it to the book. I mean, you could go into it. There's just there's so much depth and, and humanity in the. I mean, it's it's funny because Sorkin just came off another big project, which was adapted from a, a sort of uh, nonfiction as fiction book, which was the Social Network movie, which is based off of the Accidental Billionaires movie, and both the uh, Billionaires book and those the Bat book and Moneyball are fairly similar in certain ways in the way that they describe. Uh, the development of these institutions being like contemporary you know, baseball, sabermetrics, even fantasy league stuff, how that's all treated, and then social networking as a new way of socializing. It's cool that these projects are so similar, and I think you notice in the filming of the movie a lot of the usage of like the close-up of computer screens and like the close-up of television screens. Sure. That was also a big aesthetic part. Not so much of the Facebook movie, but of the Facebook, like the social network marketing materials yeah. too so like let me put this like sort of pixelation that is to say pixel pixelation is kind of a trope of the what the new order right yeah so let, let me zoom this out and put something really reductive out there so that we can just at least have a starting point right which is to say that the social network and this movie moneyball these are of a new genre of stories which are that the geeks shall inherit the earth yes or no okay. is that new 
mean, I yeah, guess. Revenge of the well, nerds. Let me, let me, let me use this example, right? So in the sort of the old mode of storytelling, there's the hacker character, the computer geek, who is an accessory to the larger actions of the heroes, which are very kinetic and very, you know, well, you know, the, you punch someone or you set off an explosion, right? And in these new types of stories that we're telling, the geek is not the accessory. The geek is the power behind it. The numbers um, and the knowledge, access to knowledge, those are the things with the real power, not just the gun and the explosion. Mm. I would say that the the archetypical story along these lines is probably like Exodus, right? Where it's like the law, the story of like the lawkeeper who leads his people out of like uh, a, a place of like bar, well, not barbarism, but a place of like uh, brutality and and sort of uh, where they're being degraded or they're not uh, allowed to kind of live out the full amount of their full extent of their dignity, right? And this and you know Moses has like these tablets that have laws on them, right? Um, and has these systems of laws in Deuteronomy and in Numbers, right? Uh, this way of organizing society that I think is fairly similar uh, relative to what preceded it. That's a good point, Pete, but yeah. you're, you're missing the, uh, the really the, the, the explosion and gun equivalent uh, of Moses, right? Which were the plagues that visited upon Egypt, right? The locusts. That's like, you know, a kinetic superpower. Type of thing as opposed well, to like, guess, knowledge, you know, taking uh, knowledge that and rules that bring order to uh, something that's otherwise chaotic. Mm-hmm. Well, it, well, I mean, what's going on in, in all of these cases is, is one social order replacing another. I mean, the way, uh, well, let me tell you, I, I mean, I have one idea for this podcast, so let me get it out there early so that I can drink for the rest of the hour. <laughs> 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 it's, uh, this, for me, this, this was a movie that was about a, um, a crisis of masculinity, right? Of contemporary masculinity. And, uh, uh, sort of what it what and uh, you know trying to answer what it means what it means to be a man um, in the contemporary world where so much that men were supposed to control um, is is out of their control now I mean there were no women to speak of in the movie uh, uh, the ex wife and and the daughter right and you kind of you kind of wonder what their therefore and I think what they're there for a lot is to be alienated from Brad Pitt. Uh, hmm. You know, you know what I mean. To be kind of, uh, to be kind of across this un- unbridgeable chasm. And Brad Pitt is the kind of the old school man's man. Uh, you know, he's sort of, he's sort of. Uh, in a couple of reviews I read, I heard him described as like predatory or shark-like. And I guess that that um, fits with the idea of his being a former scout, um, as he kind of stalks up and down the you know the corridors of the uh, the Oakland clubhouse and. Um, you know, compare that with the with the um, the guy that his ex wife remarried, who is who just seems kind of effete and feminized, and you know is either barefoot or wearing sandals or something. And you think this guy has like you know baby soft hands and never did a hard day's work in his life, and even kind of talks in a in a high kind of nasally whine. Um, you know, uh, there's there's a uh, there's a crisis of masculinity. It's brought it's brought to a head in some of the scenes where Jonah Hill has to fire some of the baseball players. Um, it's brought to Hill. I mean, the idea of the idea of a social order, the idea of like there being a trade deadline, um, and you know, baseball teams as little societies, and you can uh, you can kind of trade within certain rules up to a uh, up to a certain deadline, and you know, the formation of a society. It's kind of like. Uh, one set of commandments being replaced with another, 
or a you know a polytheistic religion being replaced with a monotheistic religion of on base percentage uh, of uh, or something like that. But the, but I mean I, the geek shall in, the geek shall inherit the earth. Sure, but this this movie I think was cons- was concerned with with the geek the quote unquote geek the kind of technocrat as a new mode of of kind of masculine. Uh, a new mode of masculine dominance that is uh, coming to the fore. So I, I didn't see the movie, but I'm, I'm curious about this just because of, of Brad Pitt's acting history as Achilles, who's sort of like the archetypal man's man from Western civilization. Like, is he subverting that with this role or does it sort of fit? No, he's the. I mean, the story, uh, Brad, the story of Brad Pitt in the movie was that he was a major league ball player who got recruited because he just seemed so perfect at the age of uh, at the age of eighteen. Like uh, he he was just perfect at everything. He could do he could do anything, and then he just choked in the majors. And um, there was no sense that he uh, uh, kind of no sense of why this had happened, um, why he failed to perform. Uh, up to expectations. So he still is the kind of old man, man's man, but he's willing to adapt and, you know, hire Jonah Hill uh, as the... Um, Jonah Hill, really good, by the way, right? Really good performance mm-hmm. from Jonah Hill in this in this movie. Yeah. Like, very understated, uh, which is not... Which is a departure for, you know, for a lot of his work up to this mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Ooh. I mean, let, let, just to, to clarify what's going on here a little bit, I think... It might be worth it to say something about randomness, just just to sort of get that out there. And I do want to get back to what Matt said because it's interesting. So when we talk about sports being a random number generator and we talk about randomness, we've kind of abandoned, I think, all of us have, and or at least should, this idea of pure randomness being a thing, right? Like you can't actually have anything that's truly random. There are causes for all of these things that happen, right? If they're not causes in sort of a discursive sense, then there are certainly like preceding things. Right, and there are like sort of preceding chains of events, even if you don't imbue them with a normative sense of causality. Sure. But there's like things that happen, and then other things happen, and these things cascade through like through time, and along with the second law of thermodynamics and all that stuff. But at any rate, what randomness means is that they're either too obscure or too complex for us to really know in in a meaningful way why they're happening. Right. So so you can look at a baseball season and you can see a lot of like noise and you can see certain preponderances. Uh, and it seems like a lot of things that are happening are just random. And I think that what you're fighting against when you're dealing with these scouts who are saying, OK, we see the kid with a sweet swing who's going to be the big next ball player. They think they figured out the cause that's going to determine the 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 outcomes, but by doing a statistical analysis where you can figure out, you can't, a statistical analysis doesn't let you figure out what's actually happening. Well, actually, I don't want to, I'm putting it in scare quotes, but <laughs> it doesn't let you find out what's the underlying preceding events and causes for all of the outcomes, but it does let you determine uh, whether the things that are happening are, are happening in sort of a, a significant way, like a statistically significant way. Is there actually some sort of meaningful Oh, if you have a sweet swing, does it mean that you actually lead to a team that has more wins in baseball? Right? And the answer is actually no. There's all this conventional wisdom built over time and anecdotal evidence and confirmation bias that says that you know, if, you have, if you're tall, if you're good-looking, if you're charismatic and confident and you're a young kid and you can throw hard and run fast, uh, you're going to be a great baseball player uh, or you have the potential to be. And then we just gather a whole bunch of them up in these big farm systems and we have them compete against each other and the winners, they go up to the majors. Um, but the idea is that investing, even investing in these kids is a bad investment when you have the option of investing in somebody who has like a proven track record of um, hitting the ball 
you know, X number of times in, in Y ways, right? And one of the big things in Moneyball is that there are statistical analysis for baseball. Like, it's not like we didn't have statistics. Baseball statistics go back more than 100 years, right? Like, batting averages are come well before the, you know, invention of the modern computer. Well, probably around the same time, but like the 1890 census and all that stuff that, like, you're seeing batting average. But the point is, by using contemporary statistical analysis and even statistical analysis of, like, the 70s and 80s and stuff, people figured out that the statistics that people were tracking were the wrong statistics, Right. And and the whole system was built around these statistics that were not the ones that were responsible for the outcomes, right? And so we don't know. Yeah, but yeah, but it's like we don't really know. Like every and and I think one of the big things the movie addresses that the book kind of doesn't address is that yes, there is one big game where statistics don't matter, and the outcome of that game matters, and that's kind of where we get to sort of soul and kind of existential romanticism of baseball. Right. But uh, and, and that's kind of and it's like, well, does that matter? Does it matter? It doesn't matter. It depends on what your job is and what your perspective is. Right. If you're the general manager, it can't really matter that much. But if you're the person swinging the ball, the bat of the ball it probably matters to you. Right. But that's a background on what the book is about, what the movie is about. Right. It's about this uh, change, this paradigm shift in how baseball's analyzed. You know, Pete, that's a really interesting thing that I hadn't thought about. Uh, that is to say, the, the kind of story that you want to tell yourself about the thing that you're doing should be different depending on what your role is with respect to. Oh, totally. Oh, right? totally. That uh, to yeah. Say, that there are useful. It's, and it's actually not even right to say that there are truer and less true stories, but there are useful and less useful stories given the thing you're trying to accomplish at the time. Like, you know, know what i mean like if it if you have to swing the bat at the ball it probably helps to be superstitious you know what i mean that is to say mm-hmm. it probably helps to like allow sort of ritual and you know good juju and bad juju into your life a little bit if you if you have to make a lot of hard-headed economic decisions about about these things no absolutely not that's the that's the the wrong way to look at it and by indulging in that kind of that kind of storytelling you um you're actually doing a disservice to yourself and the people uh, whose interest you are purporting to protect um, yeah. and, and, and so the mistake has to do in, in letting certain kinds of narrative overflow the measure where they really belong, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like a manager, uh, a manager can't think like a player. Where it's like, okay, it's you know September, the crisp air is out there. I, I do, I stretch, I put on my stirrups and my cleats, and I go out in the field. Then I go back in the clubhouse and I put on my pants. I go back on the field, and I uh, pick up a bat, and I, and I have to look at the pitcher in the eye, and then I have oh, to— Wait a minute. You go onto the field without pants on? Well, then you go back inside and you put your pants on because you shouldn't go out in the field without pants. You, you keep up with the story, Mark. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> but um, no, no, no. It's but yeah, but it's like as a manager, you can't afford to look at it that way. And I think that that the movie really draws out in some really key moments of comparison um, the social era that the movie takes place or the movie was published in, which is the era of like, you know, massive American unemployment, a massive global financial crisis, massive shifts in the allocation of capital and human resources, right? This idea of people being fired. I mean, Moneyball, let's, let's, let's not get too romantic about it. Moneyball is a story about how to cut people's salaries, right? It's about how to cut people's salaries, how to get, pay people less to get the same outcome, right? It's about, it's about a manager who has to figure out how to pay a lower salary to his workers. Just to be clear, but you're talking about that context of, of 2011, where we are now, not yes, in 2002 yes. when the movie takes place. Exactly. Like the, the t- scene around the table with all the old men and they're all going to get kind of fired and it's like adapt or die, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like especially the scenes with Philip Seymour Hoffman where he's like, I've been with this team and, and you know, I'm doing my job and I got to go to my interviews. And, and there's definitely, I think, a feeling of these, these – the big losers from the 
the housing crash, and which are older men, right, who are losing their jobs and aren't literally seeing an opportunity to get another one, right? And like it's it's a lot of movies, um, you know, up in the air and and um, comes to mind right away. Like are about this group of people. Yeah. Um, it's it's and- funny you mention this. I'm recalling another scene, a detail in this movie when they go to sign the guy who used to play catcher and eventually becomes the first baseman. Yeah, you, you can clearly see his wife is at uh, like the dinner table working on the household finances. The bill, yeah, right? yeah. And it's clear, like you know, because he's injured, because he can't throw, his career is kind of on ice, and they are looking, they're staring down the precipice. Yeah, and, and, so, and Bill, yeah. you know, Billy Bean walks in and saves the day. Yeah. And so there are people who did well in the old system, and they hate that their livelihood is being taken away. And then there's people who get a chance now who had have been on rough times, right? And the, and the correction helps them. So there's like a romantic underdog misfit toys story, but there's also a sad story about the loss of people's livelihood on the other side of things. And the point is that as the manager, you can't romanticize that too much. And I think like it you- also – well, sure, but it also would be wrong to say – the manager can't romanticize that too much. Yes, okay, g- granted, and that's probably right. But it's also wrong, I think, to say um, those people didn't deserve to make that money, you know what I mean, in their time. Or they didn't deserve their jobs in the first place because they were all laboring under a delusion. You know, because we're, we're, we're all laboring under a delusion all the time. You know, about, yeah. and, and, uh, and our delusions are, are, you know, I don't know, maybe a little more obscure, the more kind of evidence-based... Um, uh, the, the more kind of evidence-based stuff and the more sophisticated you can get with that. But then that just means the kind of delusions are maybe a little wilier and harder to root out, yeah. a, a little more subtle, uh, you know, the more information, the more information you do get. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting if you think about the scouts in the movie, right? The scout who gets really upset is the one who's like got the dyed hair and the, and the tan and is like still trying to be like the hot shot, right? And, and he's the one who gets mad right. and is like, you know, you're a disgrace and all this other stuff. The, the scout who's the older scout, the much older scout with the hearing aid is like, look, you report to the owner. We report to you. We do what you say, Right. So, so like there is resistance, but at the same time, it's not like the people who really have been through it also know that like, you know, yeah, this is how it works, right? Like, and then we have an opportunity sure, here too. Like, we can adapt with the system. We don't have to fight it. It's going to st- suck, and not everybody's going to do the same that they did. But you know, you do have an opportunity to to be part of what's going on as you go forward too. Well, right? yeah, like, that guy lived through the depression, right? Yeah, exactly. And he's like, well, you know, I've got my turnip, my canned turnips at home. I'm good for the next couple of years. And, and like Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, the coach, like he protests the changes, but he still makes it through the season. I mean, people are unhappy, but it doesn't mean that they that life stops for them, right? Like it sucks for him a little bit, but he's then at the end of the day, he gets this big, you know, props from everybody for being responsible for the changes that he fought to the nail for the entirety that they were being developed. There's a lot of complexity there. Can we talk about the the Philip Seymour Hoffman? character art how the man yeah, yeah, yeah. for a moment because uh this i'm getting uh, I'm sort of taking us off of this theme here i hope that's okay um no. i want to talk about some specifics about the storytelling which i can't quite figure out which is that he's portrayed at the beginning as um as an opponent of this new order he's yeah. not part of the the solution he's part of the problem and uh the way that spoiler the way that they take the gm uh, you know and billy bean and jonah hill uh take care of the situation is that they get rid of the players that the manager was erroneously putting on the field right essentially right and uh the, the rest of the movie he's portrayed just kind of just being there he's just kind of you know he's uh he's a warm body mm. you know except maybe at the end where he when he substitutes uh you know the the catcher turned 
pinch hitter in, you know, to hit the game winning home run. Maybe that's it. Is that the idea then that sort of like, okay, so he's like, you know, going along with the flow and he's not part of this new order, but he still represents that uh, sort of that intangible and that, and that soul of baseball at the end. I mean, I guess I think well, this, his story is mean, kind of over. Well, go ahead. So I think the, the important thing uh, about that character is when you see the news reports where he's getting all the credit for the, you know, the turnaround in the team. Right. right. That is to say, uh, the statisticians, well, statistician Jonah Hill, who I guess is a composite character. Pete, you read the book. I mean, they're like, there were a bunch of guys, weren't there? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Who, yep. Who were kind of uh, part of that. But for dramatic, for dr- dramatic reasons, it's important to have kind of a single point of accountability. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's, a, it's again, it's a point about narrative making. You know, the, the, uh, Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill put a, um, put a system in place, and the system really, if, if allowed to operate, uh, will, will produce results, you know, in line with the statistical expectations of the system. But uh, in terms of the narrativization of it, someone has to get the credit, you know what I mean? And he's, mm-hmm. he's available. So it's an availability heuristic for, like, who's the good guy? Well, the good guy is the guy that we see on TV, you know, like, uh, uh, chomping on his chaw, right? And, like... Uh, <laughs> he's the calming influence on the team, which yeah, I thought sure. was... A- well, well, right, yeah, he's made all these decisions because they see, they see changes and they see success. And, they, you know, you don't know where the changes come from. You don't know where the, where the success comes from. And let me say, this is a bit of a... I mean, this is a bit of my, my own hobby horse here, but this is the kind of thing that I hate about film criticism or about people's, uh, people's films, uh, people's kind of knee-jerk reactions to films. It's like, in, in films, films are so collectively made. Um, I mean, they, they involve the labor of a large number of very, very skilled professionals. And um, mm-hmm. Even bad ones. Well, sure. Yeah, even yeah. bad movies. Because you know what doesn't happen in bad movies? You never see a shot that's out of focus. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you never Unless it's see... on purpose. Yeah, well, right, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those are really bad movies. Many of them French, and I don't recommend yeah. them. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, you never see someone, like, knock the camera accidentally, and it shakes, and everyone yeah. ignore it. Like, <laughs> like Tom Berenger looks up and is like, oh, crap. Yeah. <laughs> someone knocked the boom mic over. <laughs> Do I go on? Do I go on? You, know? no, no, no. you never on. see the audio out of sync with the, uh, you know, with the mouse. Like, the, even bad movies, yeah. Even movies that are bad as storytelling are excellent, uh, technically. Um, and uh, so it's, it's really impossible to say where in this kind of morass of, uh, uh, of production, you know, any individual element happened. You know, and it's all stories that we tell each other after the fact, and and so we get we get very like we get very persnickety and kind of very uppity about our preferences and like what's good and what isn't good, um, you know, and the 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 uh, you know, in point of fact, we don't know, and really there is no way of knowing because these things are sort of uh, are, these things are sort of done by a collective, you know. Well, can't right. you do it statistically? You know, look at all the movies you like and analyze the. Uh overlap of all the crew and it turns out that all the movies you like have the same casting director something like that that you'd never have noticed and a film critic certainly wouldn't have noticed because if you're lucky they might note the you know kind of producer screenwriter or principal screenwriter anyway because you know aaron sorkin wasn't the only guy on this uh there was another guy on this and actually i looked back over his filmography and it does look like he's got a good record of turning non-fiction works that aren't especially narrativized into narrative story because mm-hmm. he did Awakenings, so, and 
the book is obviously very different to the yeah, film. Was... But yeah, maybe maybe plug in the network, as it were, use some kind of, uh, I don't know, factor analysis or cluster analysis, something that can really get you from a huge amount of data down to just a few. And it turns out that it's a particular cinematographer or something that really defines what's a good movie for you. Well, it's, mm. it's, it's really the craft service guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the guy who's putting the bagels and the coffee and the fruit dishes. An army marches on its stomach, man. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah, honestly, like, if you've been on a set for 16 hours and the coffee is hot, you know what I mean? And, like, you go in for that last shot with just a warm, delicious cup of joe in your belly, uh, it, it, it can make a difference. I'm, you know... <laughs> Well, I mean, it's so good. It, it certainly won't it certainly won't won't hurt and it is i mean in point of fact a lot of people do end up working with each other again and again and again uh that is to say little repertory companies develop um even in film yeah. which is you know more cutthroat than any area of the entertainment business these these little um you know like uh oh like I, happy madison yeah yeah. Tim Burton, yeah, Helena sure. Bonham Carter, Johnny Depp, Bill yeah. Nye. Yeah, you and can I'm, find I'm, I'm actually even one. thinking behind the camera, like the way Martin Scorsese and, and Thelma Schoonmacher, right, who happens <clears throat> to be, you know, geeky little factoid, happens to have edited all of his movies. Um, or, I was going to say, know, Nolan and Wally Pfister, who was the cinematographer on uh, Moneyball sure. Fister to replace whoever it was who got kicked off for like drugs or something. Oh, a um, lot of the... Because apparently that interrupts your cinematography. <laughs> yeah, if you, can't keep your, <laughs> if you can't keep your eyes still, you know what I mean? If you're twitching. <laughs> you really I really hope that they picked the production staff for the movie, like trying to find undervalued people who had things that were really... Ter- <laughs> like, look, he's a prop master. He can't see out of his left eye, all right? No one will hire him because he's... <laughs> Doesn't speak any known language, but he's a genius with putting props in the right places. You got to get this guy. You could get him for five dollars an hour. It's not even legal because he's on disability. <laughs> I want every dollar on screen. It's like you don't know. You don't understand. Like Robert Zemeckis is paying a hundred thousand dollars of this guy's salary just to not work with him. Like, can we bring him on board? Hey, is this a little bit of the Uwe Boll? Camp of filmmaking about like how I can isn't he very proud of how economically he makes his crappy movies? Oh yeah, I mean I'm sure he's proud of doing. I don't know if he necessarily brags about the tax incentives that his German investors get for making the movies, but I mean he certainly isn't ashamed of it. But yeah, it's like uh, his movies are able. He, he, I love the one where the the video where he said like you know if I start making movies, my money does not become your money. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you will make your own movie with your brother and the ketchup. Like, you know, if I stop YouTube, if I stop narrativizing baseball, my money. Bo- does not become your money. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but st- <laughs> speaking of uh, money, um, I do wonder if it is a kind of transatlantic difference of sensibilities because I thought of uh, being able to do the same in the league or just about with what a third of the money. What is it? It's about 40 million that Oakland has. Yeah. Um, and you've got to take into account the number of players that will just be murdered, given Oakland being, what, like the number five murder city. <laughs> right. Oh, sick burn. Oh, I, man, like, I wrote a little detective story there, And it's basically, the story is, no murders get solved because they just there's too many of them. So it gives a lot of room for amateurism. Because like, like when you have a bunch of shirts on the floor. Amateur detectives these days. But the point is that, in I would think, doing something great with a little amount of money is in some way considered virtuous because it's like the virtue of thrift and of 
making everything count and not having like bloated wastage. And it's so also the a, underdog stories. There's yeah, well yeah, there's a British film, well not that British, um, called Monsters. I don't know if you saw it, uh, where a couple of people have to make it across uh, Mexico that is infected with like giant killer aliens, and it was done on a hundred thousand dollars, I think. And the guy did all the special effects in his bedroom because computers are good enough to do that now. Mm. And it's a really good indie movie. Um, but the point that everyone made when it came out was like, this guy made a better movie on $100,000 and his own computer than some of the great effects movies. Mm-hmm. And so they compared it to things like, it was like at the same time that Skyline and Battle for LA came out. And they were saying, <laughs> this has like a hundred or a thousand times the budget and is Ugh. not even close to being half as good as this film and that's so, hardly fair though is it that's like it's like it's like it's like shooting carl lewis in the leg and saying you could run faster than he well, can yeah like comparing because, something yeah. to battlefield la like, i guess because and, they were comparative movies in terms of yeah. the sort of effects they were going for they were saying where right, did right, right. that money go and so i guess yeah. the comparison is it the mets who have like the big budget who they're comparing with i don't know the, the yankees no, it's the Yankees. It's not Mets. No. Okay. That's embarrassing. <laughs> oh, you're so cute. Yankees, okay. You but, foreigners you know, are so cute. <laughs> I, can, I, I, I learned everything I knew about like the New York teams from watching Friends, so that's about my level of knowledge of the teams. They all uh, play I in giant stadiums. Which, yeah, which, one, uh, which one plays which sport? So, that's the so thing you I can... Br- you um, Brits call it football, but it's actually soccer, right? Why, why, is, it well, called, why is it called an arsenal? Uh, <laughs> That was where, I mean, we used to make all of the weapons for our uh, ships, which, uh, as you might remember, uh, took over the world. That's my Secretarial burn. That happened. British Empire burn. The sort of weapons that burnt Washington, D.C. to the ground or something. Although those, I suppose, was more Canadians than us. I'm sure we gave them some guns and stuff. You had to have a whole building to make torches? can i roll it back and talk about our how for just a hot second yes oh sorry okay so we were talking about the philip seymour hoffman character who is the manager right uh i want to compare him for a second to um brad pitt's relationship with his daughter in the movie right which is not really part of the book um it's that's like pure aaron sorkin right or whatever it's pure the guy who makes the craft services that feeds aaron sorkin so that <laughs> right, the script or whatever um so it's important that it, um that he has to carry through and he continues to manage the team, even though this big change is happening that he's not entirely comfortable with. That there's an aspect to life going on and things continuing to happen. That's, that's part of all this that is happening. Is that um, Brad Pitt could fire him, right? Like, it could, Brad Pitt could fire the manager, and instead he chooses to trade the all-star first baseman in order to solve the management problem by taking away the choice from the manager, right? And, uh, I mean, what this says to me is that the manager is, having the manager in place and not changing him at this point is worth more as to Brad Pitt as manager than, like, the other decisions that he's making with Giambi and Pena and all that stuff, right? So this is a validation of Art Howe who, of course, is, is not happy with his portrayal in the book or the movie. And I think that's probably fair. He's probably being allegorized a little bit. Um, but, um, 
But it's important that when you're changing something um, and you have to deal with, oh, man, like I have to go into an institution, I have to change it, right? Uh, you know, it's, and this is – I'm getting a little bit close to things that I can't really talk about. Um, there are, there's like, okay, I, I, have, I meet these people and some of them are on board with what I'm trying to do. Some of them aren't on board with what I'm trying to do. And some of them like me and some of them don't like me. And some of them I need to keep around and some of them I don't. And these dichotomies never line up exactly. There's this perception that they're going to line up exactly, but they don't. And some people are on board with what you're doing who you don't need. And some people are not on board with what you're doing. And then people make decisions based on these sorts of things, uh, whether they want to be on board or not, depending on their perception of whether they're needed or not. Um, and at the end of the day, when you're in Brad Pitt's position, you have to make the decision on the manager to have that person on the team. Uh, you just have to make a good decision as to who to have around. And so there's a certain amount. This is where the narrative kind of collapses a little bit, right? And you start, you're in more of the money ball sphere of things, right? Where it's like, okay, I'm making this decision because it's the right decision to make, not because it makes the story work out nicely. And then when you consider Brad Pitt staying in Oakland, and the movie presents uh, Billy Bean staying in Oakland as something he does because he doesn't want to leave his daughter. Right. Like it's and and not just because he wants to be a good father, but also because he sympathizes with where his daughter is in her life, like being torn between divorced parents. I mean, though, Billy Bean still wears his wedding ring. Uh, Yeah, I mean, she is. She's she's just a girl who's caught in the middle, you know? Well, I mean, that was a little on the nose, wasn't it? Like the song, (laughs) the the Jeff Buckley style song or whatever was she was singing. I don't know where that song is from because I don't listen to that kind of music in my free time. But um, because it's I don't know, uh, because I don't I don't know. There's no women in my house so that kind of music doesn't play here but um at any at any rate it's the like the ace of spades the ace <laughs> of spades exactly oh, what do you call me big papa <laughs> all night long all night wait that's a different that's actually what i'm a what cowboy baby it is a river that flows now um these are all on my Pandora stations. From uh, but- a distance, we <laughs> are money balls. We belong. Um, listen to your heart. All right, I'm giving too much away. So- <laughs> yeah, for your fourth anniversary, can you guys do a musical episode? <laughs> so the- Consider wow. yourself thrown. The point <laughs> that... Brad Pitt and his relationship with his daughter and the life that they're having is something that that needs to continue and is going to continue and that he has to continue. He can't just pick the Red Sox and have that situation not be there. And this is really the the big disconnect between the way that people live and the way that companies operate, right? And the way that, and it's the big point of pain in the allocation of labor as a resource, at least if you ask me, right? Because you can buy a bunch of lumber and sell the lumber and the lumber doesn't care what price it was sold at. And if it did care, you wouldn't really care that the lumber cared, right? Uh, Because it doesn't change the way that the lumber exists. But people, when you buy it, when you, when you hire a bunch of people and then you fire a bunch of people, like it has a profound effect in their life. And also the places where they live are affected by it, right? So you can go into a city And you can hire a bunch of people, and then you fire all of them, and the city is worse off because it has a bunch of people who were laid off than it did before you showed up, right? And so the point is that, like, the way that people persist and and the way that human institutions persist with people in them is, like, an imperfect matchup for the ideals of managing by by statistics and there's points of pain there and those are human stories and that's it's not saying that they're good or bad it's just like telling like showing some of the lyricism of it some of the poetry of it in these moments where like Philip Seymour Hoffman has to accept that his job isn't what he wants it to be and it doesn't his his story doesn't get an entirely satisfactory conclusion and he just kind of goes on being the manager because that's his job 
Yeah, and that's to, how, like, to your point, Pete, about the contrast between the uh, very clinical and statistic-driven, uh, you know, like the cow trading uh, approach to uh, baseball versus yeah. the more human side of it. I mean, that's clearly set up in that great scene where they're going back and forth on the phone, right? Yeah. You know, as if they are trading, you know, orange juice futures or uh, pieces of lumber or cattle. Right. Yeah, and then there's that, that, that great Jonah Hill moment where he like clenches his fist and he's like, yes, yeah. like that on, on the phone. And like after the exhilaration, then like, oh, we have to uh, tell these ballplayers that they are moving across the country or being sent down to the minors. And to a degree, they're OK with it, you know, and to a degree, yeah. it's not OK. Right. Yeah. And that's where the poetry of it is. And that's where the sort of artistic beauty of this kind of story is and is in the interrelationship between the person as a resource or the person like as the person as a professional Right, it is probably the word that Brad Pitt uses. In the movie. These are professional ball players. They they know how to deal with this stuff. Right, this is what they do. Um, the the person as the professional versus the person as kind of a continuous being. If you even believe in in uh, not believe in, but if you ascribe to um, you know continuous uh, con- consciousness, continuity of consciousness, or any of those things, right? Like if a person is one thing, then that person has to keep being their thing until they're not. Right, like whether or not the jobs are there or the the situation is what it is, right? Like, am I, is that making sense? Like the sort of the the persistence of the human communities and the human experience and our subjective our experience of our lives uh, doesn't always dovetail with the um, the phenomenology of our of us as like economic actors, right? I, I, I mean, which that's... should be obvious, but I feel like it's very hard to say that without taking like a really strong stance one way or the other. It, and it's it's really hard to say it without taking a very sympathetic stance to people because if you do you're kind of if you know you're a monster if you're like because we've yeah. all we've all lost jobs or been broken up with or like had oh, yeah. you know and it sucks you know mm-hmm. and there's no I mean there's no medicine for that and there's no kind of comfort in the you know the cold steely eyed calculus of uh, you know economic rationality right. Right, right, right. Yeah, but at the same, so at the same time, it's like, do you really want to demonize that cold, steely-eyed calculus? Because it's that cold, steely-eyed calculus that also gives Billy Bean like meaning for most of the days of his life, right? Like, and, and like Jonah Hill gets a tremendous amount out of the cold, steely-eyed economic calculus. Like, if you don't use that, then you lose, right? Like, there is a there is a human side to this beast that destroys people too, right? There's something that people like. It, you, sometimes you're the bar and sometimes, sometimes you at the bar and sometimes the bar, it's you, right? Like, it's just the, the big Lebowski um, way of seeing it, I believe. It's like, you know, you, you complain that it's a steely-eyed monster when you're the person on the bad side of it, but when you're the person on the good side of it, it's like triumph and struggle and like the, the thrill of the hunt and heroism and all this other stuff. Um, it definitely changes face depending upon what your perspective is. I mean, sometimes you're you're above the mean, and sometimes the mean is mean to you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Sometimes you're I, all mode, and sometimes it's just ice cream. Wait, that's. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was just going to say that the way that the economic side and the people side interact, I guess, is really quite fascinating. And I don't know how much did they pay for these players because I'm just looking at someone who's in the, the sportsman who's in the news at the moment in Britain uh he was signed for 47 million pounds so I don't know that's what like 75 million dollars no as in that was the transfer fee they paid his old club that much money to purchase him he's paid 250,000 pounds a week so that's what a million pounds a month um that's funny that the, the club gets paid a lot more than he gets paid. That's not how it works in, in the United States. Oh, well, this is, this is what I wondered, because obviously we yeah. have quite a different system and we don't have any drafts or anything. It's like yeah. if you find someone, you train them, 
and then hopefully they stay with you, but maybe they go to a better team if that better team scouts them, yeah. which I suppose is the similarity. But yeah. the point is, he now thinks he can do what he wants, and he refused to turn up for training because he disagreed with the coach, and the coach said, well, he'll never play for the team again, but his contract goes on for three more months. So they're having to we pay just... you know, three million for a player who refuses to play. We're just talking about practice. You know, this is just pra- you're just talking about practice. I mean, this is not like it's a game. It's a practice. Nobody here gets my jokes about sports because all of you guys are nerds. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. I, Pete, I know what you're talking about. This is like a basketball player, right? Who? Uh... Iverson, right? I think. Yeah. Is, yeah. But, we, have, we have similar situations where players will like refuse to go to training because it's below them, and then like they get in public feuds. To, with to talk about but, the actual amounts of money we're talking about here. The star players, like the the I think the Johnny Damon w- was talked at about what seven or so million dollars a year, right? And then the real bargain basement folks that they get, the so quote unquote undervalued players, they're talking about several hundred thousand dollars a year, three hundred thousand like, dollars a year. Each, each, oh wow! The, in America, the players have unions. There's actually in America, there's a lot of legal, very important legal precedent around the payment and treatment of baseball players and and sports players in general because the way that players were bought and sold between teams in the past um, was seen as kind of close to slavery in a lot of instances. Well, like like specifically, like there was a black player baseball player who was being like traded right like chattel and who sued and his case went to the supreme court and that's where baseball players got the right to free agency where they can uh where they can after their contracts expire they can uh they, the team doesn't have any right over them right there's limitations to the amount of control a team can exercise over a player a team can't Selling a one, say, selling a player from one team to another is less common than it used to be, uh, and the legal protections that the player has in those kinds of situations are more extensive. But there are unions that the players have who negotiate minimum salaries for the players in the league. And just like in, say, the Screen Actors Guild, the big star players being on board with it is what gives the ownership and management like a reason to give a minimum salary to the less good players, right? Uh, or that the ones sounds are- suspiciously more socialist than our system, which is <laughs> unusual. Um, well, I mean, but, it's, it's, uh, it's more socialist. Everything that's socialism in America is that way because the workers revolted against their bosses. Right? Well, like, I guess that's as yeah. it should be. Like a genuine left-wing position should come from genuine workers having genuine rights. Yeah, but and it, anyway, it, um, I guess the way they did it here was just the players have ridiculous power through their agents – at least the big players, so that they can sign deals that even if they're slavery, they are paid a lot of money for that slavery. So if it's a cage, it's a gilded cage. I don't know if that's better than that system. And maybe what you have there is a much better system for the less good players who comprise the majority. Yeah. I think the trick here is that when the players have a lot of protections and the teams don't establish like firm franchise ownership of them, um, the very, very top players um, have have huge negotiating advantages. And Scott Boras, right, shows up very briefly in the movie uh, as the sort of the famous super agent, right, who like is, is famous for running up the negotiations for his players' salaries to like the tens of millions, right, and all sorts of uh, uh, and he's famous in the United States for kind of like pushing his players and star athletes to like massive, massive contracts and bonuses. Um, rich get richer kind of situation specifically because like the teams can't really lock them down uh and it's very easy to like you'll have them sign but then they'll like walk away or like they'll be drafted but they don't want to sign and like as soon as these super agents get involved things get start running up pretty fast um 
But yeah, but basically what, what we were seeing here is that there are definitely tiered economics in baseball where you have the players. The, the players who get the bazillions of dollars aren't really orders of magnitude better than the players who get less. But if you want to win, you know, it's not really a, a linear graph, right, in terms of what you need. Right? You can't just sort of like – it's not like you can play twice as many games to get twice as much out of a player. You pay twice as much, right? Yeah. Like you're still – you know, the, the margins, it, it curves up pretty high around that. So, um, But yeah, but definitely the economics of it are sort of working in the lower end and the hundreds of – because baseball – it also is related to how many years your career is expected to be. Because baseball players tend to have pretty long careers because the game is not as punishing as like football is um, or, or uh, even in, in basketball. I think baseball players have generally longer careers than basketball players. Plus, baseball players can play in the farm leagues and get lower salaries but still make money and make a living you know, for, for a while. Sort of like rock bands that kind of tour various like lower-end venues and are still making a living doing it but aren't like you know on VH one behind the music doing um i mean eating junior mints off the belly of a, of a stripper who's really working through college so she can become a doctor so he can become a doctor let's be equal opportunity about it male stripper just to spread the wealth <laughs> i don't that's know actually, that's our plan for making money for overthinking it that's how we're going to um <laughs> monetize overthinking it is, what eat, eat junior mints off of a stripper's chest no we're going to uh threaten to take, we're going to threaten to take our clothes off and people will pay us to stop <laughs> I assume you were going to hire a super agent to negotiate you a great deal as podcasters by like transferring to I don't know what's a rich expensive podcast. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh yes, those they, they they exist. Well, yeah, this is what I'm going to do with my podcast. I'll use statistics to somehow overtake you titans. <laughs> you can <laughs> dozens, literally dozens of unique downloads. You will get. <laughs> I'm kidding. Our uh, our listeners are phenomenal. And here's an email that one of them uh, sent to us. Um, th- this is from Rowley. I I think that's how you say it. Um, and he he uh, he writes in from the Republic of Georgia. So he says, uh, not the state of Georgia in the United States, the the Republic of Georgia. And he says, it's a much wanted- safer place to be. Sorry, <laughs> I just wanted to share with the podcasters the impact they continue to make on my life. I am living and working in the Republic of Georgia as a former uh, Soviet Socialist Republic in the Soviet Union. It shares uh, in common the culture that is part of the Soviet heritage. Specifically, people don't smile on the street. Unless you have a clear and obvious reason to smile, you look like a fool. Chatting with friends? Smile away. Reading a billboard? Yuck it up. But imagine the stares I get when I walk down the street, headphones cleverly concealed, chuckling and snickering to myself as I listen to your podcast. People on the subway stare at me with sympathy, probably assuming that I suffer from some sort of dementia as I rock in my seat, laughing at nothing that they can perceive. So in conclusion, I just wanted to thank you for injecting fantastically nerdy humor into my commute and making me look like a complete idiot in the process. Here's to you, comrades. Workers of the world unite. <laughs> Georgia, those are some tough people. The native, the the most famous natives of Georgia are what Medea and Stalin, right? <laughs> Serious, like like Medea, the not not like Tyler Perry Medea, like Medea goes to camp or whatever, like uh, like uh, like She's no Medea, like yeah, but Medea, like I'm going to what put a goat in your bathtub and torture you to death because you betrayed me ten years ago or something along those lines, like that Medea. Um, again, that. 
that's not Tyler Perry. In case you haven't seen a Tyler Perry movie, that doesn't happen. And actually, I haven't seen any of the Medea movies, so maybe it does. Maybe <laughs> maybe Tyler Perry gets really enraged because uh, her husband, his husband, uh, leaves him her for a, a Thessalonian princess or something, and then Medea has to. Um, goat curse him or something like that but anyway i love georgians isn't the uh, children medea kills the mm. children it's not just goats you know oh right 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 that's right i isn't forgot about the that. uh thessalonian princesses like the only baseball team in greece <laughs> zing uh. Uh, if you want That's to how much comment, I know about baseball. If you want to send an email like Rowley from uh, the Republic of Georgia, you can email podcast at overthinkingit.com. You can call or text 203-285-6401. Follow us on the Twitter at overthinkingit. Uh, oh, let's pimp our Twitters. I'm, uh, I'm M. Rather on Twitter. Uh, Pete? I'm Fenzelian on Twitter, F-E-N-Z-E-L-I-A-N. Mark? Goes to 12. Josh, you're not on Twitter, right? Yeah, he is. I am, but, you know... Annually. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's get you some followers. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, Josh McNeil. Josh McNeil. And uh, Tim, what's yours? Uh, at Tetrarch Angel. So if you imagine Tetrarch, like the ruler of the late Roman Empire, and Angel, as in the spiritual being, put those together. That's how you spell it. And that's, that's, that's a lot, yeah, a lot that's of us. Kind, kind, that. kind of how we think of you. And, uh, and Tim, you have, a, <laughs> uh, you have a podcast of your own. Yes, that's right. I have the Psychomedia podcast. That's as in Psy from Psychology, Com from Comedy, and Media. Um, look it up on iTunes or look back to the last time I was on. There's a link in the show notes. We uh, get a good number of overthinkers are listening to it, which is great. Uh, it's right up your street if you're interested in psychology or me making self-deprecating jokes about how I'm always single. That is... Which has some interesting psychology in it. Yeah. It's a oh, good... yeah, very much so. <laughs> It is a good time. Uh, you should check it out. Um, and also, uh, if you do us a favor, go on to iTunes and uh, go to the Overthinking and Podcast page and give us a star rating. You could write us a comment. We, we love it. We love reading your comments. I go on there and, and read the new ones every so often, uh, and I always love them, whether or not they're critical. I mean, someone wrote a critical comment once of, of the Overthinking and Podcast on iTunes that said, you know, I downloaded the Harry Potter episode, and they actually didn't talk about Harry Potter at all on the episode. They, <laughs> they just talked about how none of them had ever read the books and somehow <laughs> filled an hour doing this uh so you know two stars guys uh and i thought well you know that is a fair criticism of our show i mean that is an accurate description of what we do so i but voted, we saw the movie this time we did i voted it i voted that i voted that uh that comment helpful uh, you good, know, with, my, with my itunes account i'm using the power of social media for good um but <laughs> hey you know we'd appreciate it if you like the show and and uh you know give us a good star rating uh but you don't have to write a comment just just clicking a number of stars would be good that surfaces us in the the rankings on itunes especially if you do it on monday or tuesday uh so that it coincides with the bulk of the downloads uh the weekly downloads of the show that is good for us and we get up there into that you know i don't know top 120 we're like we're 87 you know in the tv and film category so that if you if you do a very specific six click sequence in itunes you uh you see us on a list, which you know, I suppose is not is not nothing. We technocrats, we uh, we Jonah Hills of. Um... <laughs> you know what? I will take one laughing person in the Caucasus Mountains over eighty positions on the iTunes list of top TV and movie or whatever it is podcasts. And wherever like, you are, yeah. wherever you are in the Anglophone or former Soviet world. 
Visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't It's Soviet Georgia. Pop culture analyze you. Find that country. Man, it, does did anybody else like constantly make that joke about like Georgia the country versus Georgia the state? Like whenever they had the opportunity from the years like 1991 through like 1996, I, it was I actually a, a prominent friend. feature of the community episode this week. Oh, they're, they're still doing it, so it's still <laughs> yeah, out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, hasn't I, gotten I, old. Hasn't gotten old. I have uh, a friend who moved to Georgia this week. I really need to tell her about the smiling thing because she's a smiler. She's in great danger. (laughs) And tell her her to eat some of them delicious peaches. In the dirty, dirty. Because of the nuclear waste. No, that's not what I mean. You know what? I would pay to see see the real housewives of Georgia. I feel like that could be a pretty interesting show. (laughs) Next on the real housewives of Georgia. Georgia. Wouldn't it be real, like, babushkas or something? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and what's the the word for... Pravda. Pravda babushkas of Georgia. (laughs) You don't insult Georgian women, because they will put goats in your bathtub. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, kill 35 million peasants. I didn't watch the Tyler Perry movie. I'm not sure how that works. (laughs) 